have a Bible, hopefully there's one close by you in the pew, either your own or one that's provided for you. If you could turn to Ephesians chapter 6, New Testament. Get past Matthew, Mark, and Luke, keep going. Romans, Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 5 through 9, but we're going to focus in on 5 through 8 this week. This is God's Word. We believe it to be true. We believe infallible. We believe it always leads us towards the God who is able to save us. Let's give attention to His Word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, because this is your word. This is your word, and we know that it is strong and powerful and able to save people. We know that it is able to draw us to a greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that your spirit is at work in your people as you enable us to hear and to see the realities of the kingdom of God going on around us and to be able to place our hope in Jesus. We ask that you would strengthen us by your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, this morning, our look is at work according to the gospel. I think maybe your bulletin says working according to the gospel. That's fine. But work according to the gospel. How does the gospel begin to make us think about work? It's easy to begin to get all caught up in a discussion here about slavery, and many people want to have this whole discussion. Let me just go ahead and put this away so we can move on to what the text, I think, is really trying to get at. Slavery at this time in the Roman Empire was very different than what most of us think about. Under Wilberforce, you know, we, those of you who've seen the movie Amazing Grace, when we think about the slave trade that most of us understand, that was a very different slave trade than what was going on during this time in the Roman Empire. It's not said there was none of that going on, but it was not, when people talk about slaves or servants, that was not the understanding that most people understood. Many servants were very wealthy. Many servants owned servants. The whole understanding of servitude in the Roman Empire was that everybody was a servant if you weren't a lord of land. If you didn't own the land, you were some sort of servant to somebody. It was the only way you could economically survive. So many people, because of their poverty, would indenture themselves to a particular landowner or whatever, and they would work, but they would often work themselves up to where either they could buy their freedom because they had a plenty of wealth, which means they had opportunity to free themselves, but also the reality was that many of them remained servants because they appreciated the the opportunity to work with particular people, with their masters. And so the whole understanding that's going on here as Paul begins to speak to this, because many people wonder why Paul does not openly, in any of his epistles, go after slavery as an institution. They just can't fathom it. The reason why is because part of it, that's not his issue. Secondly, 
It's, it's the fact that this understanding of slavery was a very different slavery than what most of us think about. The very dehumanizing slavery that went on in the slave trade um, during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. I just want us to get a hold of that, comprehend that, so that we can kind of move past that so we're not asking this text to say something this text is not trying to say. It's not speaking to that, not because it's indifferent to it, but because it's not the point that Paul wants to make. What Paul is trying to get at, I believe, and what I want us to look at this morning is this. What he wants us to begin to look at is an understanding that, yes, were there abuses in the workplace during the Roman Empire? Yes. Were there slaves who were beaten? Were there slaves who were mistreated? Yes, there were. And men and women, there are some people who work in places where their bosses may never physically lay their hands on them, but they are beaten down, abused, and they have a job, and it's the only job they have, and they are so afraid if anything happens to that job that their whole life would come crashing down. In our culture today, most people are slaves to their jobs. Why? Because we work paycheck to paycheck. You just need to realize that. Most of us, if we really get down to it, go to work because if we don't go to work, we will not eat. Literally. Our whole portfolio is dependent upon a job we have, and that job continues to provide for us X amount of money to pay all our bills. So I want you to understand that the folks in the Roman Empire are not necessarily all that different in understanding that they need resources to do things. Part of it was is that they, many of them wanted to have enough resources to buy their freedom. They wanted to be able to get out from underneath the burdens they live in. But I want you to understand that in some ways there is no culture that is ever completely free of living in the rat race. Okay? No culture. Everybody has a certain understanding of work and jobs, and, and, and why we do it, and why we go to work, and how we process it. And so Paul is speaking into that kind of understanding. How do we, or should we, think about work if indeed the gospel is true, if indeed Jesus Christ has come, if indeed the Father has poured out His love? One of the greatest things that could happen in, in, for a, a servant or a slave in a Roman in the Roman culture was that he could be adopted by his master if he didn't have any earthly heirs. He could adopt one of his servants and give to him the title, his own title, and say he is son, which means he would inherit all his former master's wealth. I want you to think back at how Paul began Ephesians back in chapter 1. Jesus Christ is Number one son, his heir, has come to earth and given his life so that all of those who have faith in him might be adopted as sons. Now see, that's how Paul's trying to get us to start to think about our relationships. He's already talked to us about marriage. He's talked to us about family, children, parents. Now he moves us into the workplace. How? should Christians think about work? And what I want you to begin to think about in work is that what happens is he wants to change our understanding about work. He wants to get us to understand that there's been a change in our hearts, and he wants us to understand the call that Christ has placed in our lives. We're going to get at that in three different ways. The first point I want to look at is how am I to work? What's my attitude supposed to be? Look at how Paul begins to address that. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, there's a sense in which you could say, almost have said, the title of the sermon could have been the heart of the matter or a servant's heart, because look how many times he's saying heart, heart. It's all about coming from your heart. This is something that has to be from the inside working its way out, not outside working its way in. Paul is suggesting here that somehow Christians have had a heart change and that heart change ought to reflect itself as they go out into the workforce. So the attitude that he's looking at them to have is one that is a sincere heart, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. What does that mean, a sincere heart? Well, part of what that means is that you're a person who has integrity. Now, we've talked about this before, but integrity basically it comes from the root of integrated. Well, what's supposed to be integrated in you? Well, the gospel. The reality of who Christ is and what he's done for us. That's supposed to get so inside of you that when you look and you say, look at what Jesus has done. Look at the work he did. Look at how he did his work. Look at the way he worked. That begins to become instructive to me as to how I'm going to go to work. Because I realize that I have the great freedom to go to work because of what Christ has already done in His work. You begin to see that what Paul is trying to say here is the gospel has changed you and therefore you should go to work with integrity. Of course integrity means you don't steal from your boss. Of course integrity means you pay people fair wages. Of course integrity means... But see, what Paul's trying to get at is that should come from a heart that's been changed. We understand that there are honest people in the workforce who aren't Christians. That's not shocking. That's not surprising. People apply biblical principles and, and biblical realities around them. We're not incapable of doing that to some degree. Paul's saying, I'm not just about you getting out there and being formally obedient I'm interested in you being changed inside, that why you do it and your motivation for doing it is completely transformed so that all these other things will take place. The other idea of sincerity of heart is singleness of purpose. Think about that. I'm going to work with a singleness of purpose. We'll talk about what that purpose is in just a minute, but I want you to think about that. When he says from a sincere heart with integrity, with singleness of purpose. I'm focused. I have a reason for being there, and I'm not deterred from that reason. The other word that Paul uses here is the idea of being wholehearted. Look at where he says there, doing the will of God from the heart. Some translations you'll have will say wholeheartedly. There's a sense in which that's exactly like the sincere heart, but here's what I think why Paul uses that term there. It's the idea of inner motivation. What's motivating you? Why do you do what you do? What's motivating me to get up and go to work in the morning? Unreserved dedication. You should go to work with the idea that I am unreservedly dedicated to seeing to it that my boss is served, that the company is served, that the customer is served, whoever you're working for. Some of you are, own your own businesses, so you're working for the customer. You go with a singleness of mind, with unreserved dedication, with zeal, 
that good would be done. So you think about Titus, zealous for good works, zeal to see good done in the world around us. That's the attitude that Christians should have. That's incredibly hard. I want you to realize that it's incredibly hard to go to work day after day after day after day and have all this attitude with you. But that's what Paul's saying should mark Christians as they go to work. They should go to work wholeheartedly, with a sincere heart, with a single purpose, with unreserved dedication, with zeal that good would be done in the marketplace. Now, for some of us, that's striking. For some of us, that may even create some problems for us because we want to think about things like this. Um, I go to work so I can do ministry. I go to work so that I can, can basically do what I want to do. I go to work so that I can have my money so that I can give to missionary efforts. Paul is trying to change our attitude about work and say, no, you need to see work in a completely different way. And that brings us to the second point, which is, who am I working for? Well, first of all, it's obvious who we're working for. Doesn't it say in verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling? Which is usually a term that's reserved for God alone. But notice Paul here says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now I want us to think about that. Think about Christians going to work and actually thinking about with unreserved dedication to their employment that they're going to obey, that they're going to do what they're asked to do. Now, I'm not saying, men and women, that you're supposed to be abused at work. I'm not saying that if your boss says, you know, you're going to work 130 hours a week, that, that you just, you know, you, you take that laying down necessarily. My point is, is that you should have such a heart that is desiring to do your earthly boss, your earthly customer, whoever it is that you are, are seeking to serve, you are to do that in such a way that they basically feel like there's virtually nothing I can't ask of this person. And I know that I can trust them to get the job done. I know that I can. Why? Because they're always the type of person that when I give them a task, they give everything they have to see it get done. Now notice what I'm not saying. Because, see, the text has already started to tell you how you're not supposed to do that, not as men-pleasers. I'm not saying you're supposed to work in such a way that your boss looks at you and says, gosh, I can't live without Marty. Marty's the best accountant we've got at TEP. What will we do if we don't have Marty? Well, that's a great side benefit of this attitude, maybe. Maybe. But it could be that if Marty really is working with integrity, working diligently, actually obeying his bosses, actually doing all the things he's supposed to do, that everybody else in the office could hate his guts and do everything they could to get him fired. Because he makes it hard on everybody else. Well, you always got to do it the right way, Marty. Well, you always got to be raising the level. Well, Marty's attitude is not to raise the level. It's not to make it hard on others. The point is he is to do his boss good in every way on every occasion. Because he's working for his boss. Sorry, Marty, it's, uh, it's, it's your sermon today, brother. 
The point I want you to understand then is, is that you can't get away from this and merely say, oh, well, let's just immediately jump to Christ. Absolutely, we're going there. But I want you to understand that Paul is saying you work for your bosses. And you can't not just jump over that and say, well, you know, forget our boss, but I'm working for Jesus. See, you're going to miss the point. Your boss is made in the image of God. And just like a spouse who is married to an unbeliever is supposed to do everything, living with that person, to give a testimony of the hope that lies within them and the manner in which they treat that spouse, just like parents are supposed to love their children with such zeal that they will come to love and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like children who are Christians who may not who may be under parents who are not are supposed to obey and love their parents and live with them in such a way that their parents might see the good news of Jesus Christ. So employees ought to work in such a way that whether they're working for themselves, for a customer, that their customers would say there's something strikingly different about the way Steve Boyer works on airplanes. There's something strikingly different about the way Jane serves up Starbucks coffee. You see, there ought to be something that is showing forth in the manner in which you're doing it because the attitude you bring to it, but also because you see, God has called me to work for this person. And I'm to pursue their best as I'm able to do it. Now, secondly, I want us to look under who am I working for is that we ultimately are working for Christ. And I want you to think about this. If you're working for Jesus, I want you to understand, because you might go right past this, or you might be saying to yourself, well, what's work got to really do with the kingdom of God? Well, look, how many times does Paul have to tell you, you're doing this as to the Lord, you're doing this for Christ, you're doing this. That means that when you go to work, that you have an opportunity to be both doing your job, which is creational. We all are called to work because of the creation. We are called to work, to do things. But you can actually have redemptive influences at work. See, we're always supposed to be living in such a way that we're giving a testimony to the hope that lies within us. Somehow that ought to be changing us. And if it's a matter of the heart, then that means that as you go forward with a sincere and wholehearted effort at work, you may have the opportunities to, to share with other people what's happening in your heart, what's changed you, because you realize I'm working for Jesus. The other thing I want you to see that's happening here that is incredible is that what Paul's trying to say is that everything we do in life falls under the sphere of Jesus Christ. So when you go to church, you're under Jesus. When you go out to play golf, you're under Jesus. When you go down to have a cup of coffee with your friends, you're under Jesus. When you go to work, that falls under Jesus. Which means that no matter what society says about your occupation, you may work in an occupation where someone says that's the lowest of the low, that's the menial of the menial. And in our society, the lowest of the low and the menial of the menial is to be a housewife. Oh, so in other words, you're a baby pooper scooper. There's nothing lower than being, oh, a stay-at-home mom, especially if you have a college education. What a waste. But do you see what Jesus is saying through Paul to us? Whether you're getting your hands dirty in diapers, whether you're a ditch digger, 
whether you're down in the sewers cleaning out the sewers so that all of us up top can remain sewer-free, trash collectors to a CEO, your work is not insignificant. Your work matters. Whatever you're doing matters because you're doing it under the lordship of Jesus. Now, that was profound. You, you realize what happened in the days of Martin Luther and John Calvin when people began to finally realize, you mean that as believers, whatever we're doing, whether we're hay balers, pooper scoopers in the barn, or we're the prince who owns the land, our work matters. Yes. That's what Paul's saying. Your work matters. What you do matters. It doesn't matter whether anybody else thinks it does. Jesus says it matters. And do you understand how revelating that is? How redeeming that is? How freeing that is? Because now I realize I'm not going to work for the man, quote unquote. I'm going to work for Jesus. I'm going to work for the Creator. I'm going to work with zeal and single-mindedness and integrity because whatever I do is under the lordship of Jesus, no matter what I do. And that becomes amazingly encouraging and freeing as we begin to focus on that and realize that God called you to be whatever He called you to be. He made you to be whatever He made you to be. And when you use those talents and that time in work, the Lord says, I'm honored by that. The other thing that I want us to think about as we look at who am I working for involves our affections. If you're working for Jesus, then what should at some point begin to grab hold of you is, what won't I do for the one I love? What am I not willing to do for the one who loves me? So don't you see that that's what Paul's getting at too? He's talked to us all in the beginning of Ephesians. Do you see how much God has loved you? Do you see how much grace He's given to you? Do you see how kind He's been to you? Do you see, do you see, do you see the love of God for His people? And if you begin to see that, then if you really believe you're loved and that what you're doing matters to the one who loves you most... What is it that you won't do? What is it that you're unwilling to say, no, Jesus, I won't do that? The last one I want to look at is, what am I working for? Paul addresses this as well. Look at what he says there in verse 7. He says it in verse 6 too. He says, doing the will of God from the heart. But he gets more specific when he says, rendering service with a good, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The idea that Paul's beginning to get there is this, that ultimately our reason for being on planet Earth is to be kingdom extenders. And the way the kingdom is extended is one heart at a time. The kingdom is being extended. Every time someone moves from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, a person says, I actually see what Jesus is saying. I actually really do believe that what he did on the cross was for me. I really do see that I am a sinner and that I deserve to die and that when I repent, Jesus really does forgive me. That huge weight is removed. I realize that when He raised from the dead, I was raised from the dead. I now have life because He has life. And the whole way of looking at the world has been changed. 
Now, do you understand that if your boss moves from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, your workplace has to start to change. If a number of the other employees at your place begin to become saved, you realize your place will change. It just can't not. There's a bunch of Christians working there. There's a bunch of people who, who didn't know Jesus, who now know Jesus, and realize that work has been reformed for them, and they now can be living and operating in a completely different way. Which actually helps you on the dog days when it's just really hard to keep all these things in mind. You realize that as that starts to take place in the community, that community will probably start to look somewhat different. Why? Because all of a sudden, Christians are being found in the workplace. Not running away from the workplace. Not treating the workplace like, oh, we got to go to work. Missionaries got to be supported. Ministries got to go on. The point is, is that work is your place to go and do what God has called you to. Not everyone is called to active ministry, pulpit ministry, those type of things, but we're all called to be serving the Lord in the various capacities He calls us to. What I do in the pulpit is not more important than what Marty does at TEP. It's different. The implications of it could have greater consequences, but there's nothing more special about Dennis because I'm a pastor than Marty because he's an accountant. We're both sinners in need of God's grace. We're so grateful He showed it to us and we strive to do the best at what He's called us to do using our talent, time, and gifts to see it happen. We've got to see that. We've got to see that what Jesus is saying here is the sphere of work is not somehow broken up into the sacred and the secular. What He's saying is is that all work is under the head of Jesus Christ. All work is under Jesus And therefore, we have to be thinking what we're working for is that God's will would be done. What is God's will being done on this planet? I desire that all men would be saved. This is the Great Commission. Go ye into all the nations. All the nations. See, that's what God is about. Mission. Reaching out. Going out. Seeing that His will is done. Which means that if you're at work, that's your mission field. When you're at home with your children, that's a mission field. When you're out on the golf course, you're on the mission field. You're having a cup of coffee at the local Starbucks or the local whatever coffee place you want to go to, that's a mission field. There's no place you can go where you can say, there's nobody here that needs Jesus. There's always somebody that needs Jesus. Whether they're a believer who's discouraged or they're an unbeliever who needs to come to faith, everybody needs Jesus. And Paul is trying to say, when you go to work, your heart's attitude ought to be, people here need Jesus. Not in some kind of condescending way, but in a way that realizes that we could actually do the job better if we know Jesus. And therefore, if we know Jesus, we ought to strive to do the job better. Because we know Him. And we want to see His name glorified. That's what 1 Corinthians 10.31 is saying. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do everything you do 
with such passion and zeal that you're working to see what God's will be done on earth is happening in your life and around you. We strive to see that taking place. So we're working to see God's will done. We're working to see His glory spread. We're working to see sinners saved. We are also working because we know that good awaits us. Look at what the text says. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Do you see how amazing that is, what God's saying to you? Let's step back and think about this. You're not a, you basically are part of the human race, which means you're a sinner. We already know what Paul has said earlier, that the wrath of God is seen being poured out on the sons of disobedience, of which you all formerly were. You all were formerly sons of disobedience. Which means that all of you were deserving of God's wrath. Which means you deserved nothing but His ill will and punishment. But He loved you because He loved you. And He showed you mercy and grace. And He called you to be one of His children. Not only one of His slaves, but one of His children. One of his very own children to receive all the rights and privileges of heaven, which is your inheritance. And then he says, and actually when you do good, I'll actually pay you back for it. What kind of deal is that? I do every, I've done everything I could do to basically not honor the Lord. He saves me gives me all the goodness of heaven, and then tells me, and so Johnny, when you go out and you cut the grass with the lawnmower I bought and with the gas I bought and with, you know, with the time I took to teach you how to do it, and I'm actually going to pay you for that. I mean, isn't that kind of the way it is when, when you pay your children to do work around the house? I mean, it's, it's almost like you did everything so they could make money. I mean, do you realize the profound generosity of that? And multiply that by about a gazillion, and you're getting somewhere close to the kind of grace and mercy that God has shown. And we're actually supposed to see that as a means that motivates us. I'm working for heaven, and it matters. And there is a reward that awaits me that goes above and beyond everything else I've already been promised. You mean there's more? Yes, there's more. Is there any limit to this God's grace? No. There is no limit. And do you understand that that's how Piper and others can say that, look, that's the whole point, that we're not just in this just all for God's glory, like somehow that doesn't do us any good, but the reality is that the more glory God gets, the better off we are in every way. Jesus wasn't joking when He told His disciples, whatever you give up in this life will receive it back in this life and more in the kingdom. And Paul picks up on that and says, look, do you realize you're working for something that's tangible and substantial? Not pie in the sky, real, touchable. It's kind of like this. You're, you're basically stocking this away in the best Roth IRA you can possibly get. And Paul says, look, we have motivation for working. Conclusion then. 
How can I have this attitude of a servant? How can I have that attitude? And I want you to really think about what we talked about. Singleness of purpose, integrity. Every day I get up and say, I'm going to work to do my boss good. No matter what he said to me. No matter what he's done to me. Men and women, for many of us, that, that, that sounds virtually impossible to think that every day I'm going to get up and go to work with that kind of attitude. Secondly, how can God possibly require me to work in horrible situations? I mean, if I'm loving the Lord and reading my Bible every day and witnessing to people and giving faithfully to the church and doing all these things, how come God hasn't just basically given me the, the best job ever? I've done everything I know how to do. I'm doing everything I know how to serve Him. And see, the question is, is that but what if God has actually called you to be in a very difficult situation for His glory and your good? What if that really is serving the greater purposes of the kingdom for you to be in a very difficult situation? Lord, I don't like that. How am I going to deal with that? How am I going to stay in that? How can I maintain in the midst of all this pressure an attitude which says, offer Jesus, offer His glory? Here's how. Here's what I want you to think about. Because I want you to admit that every day we're not going to get up with that kind of attitude, no matter how much we desire to do it. We're not going to maintain that kind of zeal all the time, even though we may wish that we did. We're not going to always go to work and say, boy, Everything for God's glory, because we don't. But what begins to help us to move in the process to where more and more of our days are like that and less and less of our days aren't? It's this. It's realizing that Jesus was the prince. He was the king. He was the landowner of a cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing in the universe that he didn't make. And it's all his. And he left it to become a speck of dust on a speck of dust in the universe he made. To do what? So he could stand up there and go, yes, your God has now come down and taken on the form of you so you can rightfully bow down and worship me? No. He came to become a servant. He came to be one who said... I will do whatever it takes to obey my Father in heaven, my Master in heaven. Whatever it takes so that He might be glorified and that others might be saved. Do you see that? Do you see that every beating, every stroke, as those nails were hammered in, that reality was all done as Jesus is a servant so that we might be set free to serve, so that we might be set free to love, so that we might be set free to work in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the more we really do look at that and realize that it's Jesus who put the towel and washed his disciples' feet, the master watched, washed the disciples' feet, the more we start to see that reality in our minds the strength and the courage to press on in difficult situations is realized. And see, the real question for us is not, is that true or not? 
I think the real difficulty for people in our congregation and for people who've been around the gospel a whole lot is for us not to do what the writer of Hebrews says, to, to treat it like it's not all that big a deal. That we don't think about how great a salvation we really have. That we don't treat it like the incredible, awesome, freeing, life-changing, life-transforming reality that it is. That we just kind of go, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, we're supposed to live better. Yeah, we've got His Word. That's helpful. No, Paul's saying something much more profound. Do you see that the God of heaven loved you so much that in all your wickedness and rebellion, as a bad wife, as a bad kid, as a bad workman, He came to redeem you and bring you back. Not because you deserved it, but because He loves you so much, He was willing to pay the ultimate price to get you back. And the more that begins to soak in to us as God's people, the more we will go to work with a single-minded purpose, zealous for good works, desiring to see God's glory spread and others come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because we know that we're not laboring for just nobody. We're laboring for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our very own Jesus. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.